it seems like we're discussing a different jurisdiction's increased transfer pricing scrutiny every week, it's because we are. And this week, we're going to Southeast Asia, in particular to Vietnam, to examine their accelerated take on compliance and how MEs can brace themselves for impact. Hello, everyone. It's Matthew DeMello, your host of the Fiona Show Transfer Pricing Cross-Border Solutions Weekly Transfer Pricing Podcast. And on today's show, we're joined by Cross-Border Solutions Chief Economist Mimi Song and Professor Eddie Molesky from Duke University to discuss the changes in Vietnam's transfer pricing scrutiny. But first, let's take a look at transfer pricing in the news. Costa Rica is known for its tropical beaches, lush rainforest, melt-you-to-the-bone humidity, and now its newfound OECD status. The Central American country is the 38th member of the OECD as of May 25th. But admission to the so-called Rich Countries Club didn't come without hard work and perspiration. The initial accession process started in 2015 and required Costa Rica to change its laws and regulations to better align with OECD standards. The country was officially invited to join in May 2020, and now the ink has finally dried. OECD Secretary General Angul Gurria praised the country for its perseverance and is, quote, impressed that the cross-party commitment to OECD accession that we witnessed during the accession process continued into the ratification phase despite the pandemic, end quote. Sometimes it's better late than never. We're looking at you, Argentina. The tax authority released a long-awaited guidance on preparing transfer pricing documentation for businesses impacted by the pandemic. It outlines how to conduct a successful functional analysis, where to source comparable information, the importance of determining new risks introduced by the pandemic, and how to illustrate government assistance. Keeping with the better late than never theme, the country's transfer pricing documentation deadline has been extended by three months. We're talking fiscal years with a December 31st, 2020 through December 31st, 2021 end date. The news never sleeps and apparently neither does the European Commission. Its latest area of focus, shell companies. While the executive branch has cracked down on a host of tax avoidance systems, shell companies are still being utilized. The commission's plan of action includes enacting legislation around defining tax substance requirements and enforcing rules for EU member states. The commission will be accepting comments until June 17th. So what are you waiting for, multinationals? Hi, I'm Matthew DeMello, and you may know me as the host of the Fiona Show Cross-Border Solutions Weekly Transfer Pricing Podcast. And while I love to discuss transfer pricing, this podcast isn't the only place you can hear me doing it. Cross-Border Solutions recently relaunched Transfer Pricing University, a live webinar series where you can learn about modern-day transfer pricing, everything from methodologies to comparables to preparing documentation to meet country-specific regulations. Good stuff, I know. Chief Economist Mimi Song leads the sessions. I just ask the occasional obvious question. Since our program is NASBA certified, you can earn one CPE credit for joining each session. Pretty sweet. So what are you waiting for? Join us for Transfer Pricing University Weekly. Classes are free, so now you really have no reason to miss it. Sign up at xbs.ai slash tpu.
Welcome back, everyone. We're here today with Cross-Border Solutions Chief Economist Mimi Song and Professor Eddie Molesky from Duke University to talk about the changes in transfer pricing scrutiny we're seeing right now from Vietnam. And I'm actually going to hand things off to Mimi for this conversation. Mimi, you have the floor. Eddie, it is such a pleasure to have you with us. I'm curious. Let's start with a couple of get-to-know-you questions. What has the past year of pandemic life been like for you? Yeah, well, it's, it's definitely been different. It's a whole bunch of adjustments <laughs> in my life. You know, in some ways, there were some, some nice things about it. I didn't have to travel as much. I got to spend more time with my family. Um, mm-hmm. I had some opportunities to do some writing that I wouldn't have normally had to do. But, but it has created some challenges. Professionally, I run a center at Duke called the Duke Center for International Development that relies on foreign students, mid-career professionals coming here to train with us and executive training. We do a lot of field research projects. And for all of those, COVID has, has been very difficult. And so, you know, we've had to make a bunch of changes in our programming, move things online, projects got stopped. So that's been very difficult. Actually, for me, switching to online teaching, though, was, has been the least problematic of everything I've done. It's, it's actually, in some ways, switching to Zoom lectures has had some advantages for me, actually, in terms of my engagement with the class. That's great. That's, that's always good to hear, right? And you actually teach political economy at Duke. What drew you to being a professor? <laughs> yeah, so I, I love political economy. It's sort of the, the study of how businesses engage with the political apparatus and how policies affect business performance. So I've been interested in that for a long time. I really enjoy being able to do research, being able to ask you know, tough questions and look at puzzles that haven't been answered yet. I, I really like quantitative analysis. I enjoy, I teach and I research in econometrics. So I like using those skills. And I think the, the teaching part is always really fun. I, you know, I teach both undergraduates, masters, doctoral students, and, and I really enjoy engaging with them, watching them learn. For econometrics in particular, the learning curve is really fast. They come in with zero skills and they come out being able to do their own research. And, and that is tremendously rewarding. That's amazing. And and you've actually dedicated a large piece of your career to the study and development of Vietnam specifically. What drew you to Vietnam and, and why do you keep focusing on that particular country? I first went to Vietnam in 1997, 1998. I was a loose scholar, which is a program from the Henry Luce Foundation. I, you might remember from you know, Time Magazine, Henry Luce, Time Warner, and they have a program each year that sends 12 to 14 young people, they have to be under the age of 30, to go live and work in Asia. And mm. so they have to, they go there, they work in an area of their sort of expertise. So we had people that went to Japan to work in physics labs or work in architectural firms. And for me, they placed me at the first business school in Hanoi, Vietnam, at National Economics University. So I sort of dropped in. I was given language training. <laughs> I thought I, I thought I spoke Vietnamese really well. And then I got in the first taxi on my on my first way in from the airport and realized that no one could understand what I was saying. <laughs> and, and at that point, Vietnam had started its economic reforms in 1986. So it had been open for about 11 years, but there weren't a lot of foreigners living in Hanoi at that time. So I had a real opportunity living close to the university, having lots of friends that were young students there to be able to just learn a lot about the country from just doing 
normal things, you know, going out on motorcycle rides, playing soccer with people. So I think professionally, I just became fascinated with Vietnam at that time. What really changed for me was at this business school, it was called the National Economics University Business School. And it had been sort of started with funding from the Swedish International Development Agency. And they had a whole bunch of professors that had gone to get an MBA through a program at Boise State University of the United States. But when they came back to Vietnam, they were, they were all of a sudden very attractive. They spoke English really well. They had MBAs and foreign companies kind of started to poach them. <laughs> but the whole idea of the program was that those people were supposed to teach in that business school and continue the growth of the business school. So they brought in a consultant, a guy who had formerly worked for Bain Consulting, really smart guy. And he was developing a management consulting group there that would allow those professors to earn a little extra money and stay with the school. And I got placed with him and, you know, we were there and he had learned that I had taken some statistics as an undergrad. And he asked me if I would take part in their marketing training where they were going to teach statistics for marketing. And he then sent me all over the country to work with these state-owned enterprises that had never had to do marketing ever. They were state-owned enterprises and suddenly they were having to deal with like, how do you function in a free market? How do you compete? And so I would go and teach them like how to do a survey, how to collect data. I barely knew these things myself. Like I was learning them as I went, but it was fascinating to me because I got to see economic reform like right on the front lines. And then the other thing is I was able to experience how different things were all over the country, how, you know, how different the economic environment was in Ho Chi Minh City as opposed to Hanoi in Bing Zuong, which was this province just outside of Ho Chi Minh City that had become sort of a hotbed of foreign investor activity. And so that, that actually informed my own dissertation research on provincial economic reform policies and eventually led me, and this is a complicated story that we can get into a little bit, to work with the Asia Foundation and the Vietnamese Chamber of Commerce and Industry, and then eventually an organization called Development Alternatives Incorporated, on creating an index that ranked the provinces in Vietnam based on their investment environments. So that, that's funded by USAID, and it was funded in USAID beginning in 2004, and that funding continues today. So every year in Vietnam, we conduct a survey of about 10,000 firms, about 8,000 domestic enterprises in every single province in Vietnam, and then about 1,000 500 foreign enterprises. So it's given me a chance to be able to see in like in real detail, you know, how Vietnam's economic reforms and progress has affected the business environment. But, you know, but I've also been able to see how individual provinces have driven that process through their own reform initiatives that then become successful and then get mimicked across other provinces and then eventually at the central level. That's amazing. And this is exactly why you're the best guest for our Vietnam specific podcast today. So I'm really excited about this. So let's start with a general overview of of Vietnam here. What makes it so desirable for multinational corporations to set up operations in Vietnam? Okay, let let me try to answer this question, I think, in three parts, because, yeah, because I think there's been some transition in Vietnam. So I want to talk about you know, what it was like, why, why it was attractive initially, why it's attractive now. And then I do also want to spend a little bit of time on the impact of 
the Trump administration's tariffs on China, because that has had a huge impact on investment in Vietnam. And it's, we're thinking about the impact that that has had on, you know, some of the things that we're going to talk about later in this conversation. So I, I would say that the way to think about Vietnam in the early years, say the late 80s, early 90s, was most investors were thinking about Vietnam primarily as an export platform. So they were coming in and they wanted to take advantage of Vietnam's very low labor costs, but a low labor costs that were combined with uniquely high labor quality. Because of Vietnam's, it's a single party regime, it had a lot of emphasis on education, it had over a 90% literacy rate. And then for some interesting reasons, it's, well, we can get into some linguistic reasons why it's easier for Vietnamese to learn English, to program and write. And so they were able to take advantage of that. And really it was about location and these labor benefits that was drawing them there. And there were some Western investors at the time. There were also a lot of Asian investors. So you saw investment coming in from Japan, Korea, Singapore that had had experience with running this type of export platform in other Southeast Asian countries. One thing that investors said at the time that I thought to be really interesting, I mean, almost ironic, given the fact, you know, we think of Vietnam as a non-democratic country, but they often would say that they valued the political stability, because I think that meant that they thought that policies would not change dramatically over time. And they continue to say that today. Like if you ask investors, like 96% of them will say political stability is important in that. But at that time, investors complained a lot about the quality of infrastructure and about the quality of governance. They thought regulations were burdensome. It took them way too long to be able to get their investment licenses. Many times it would be many years. They worried about expropriation. They didn't think property rights were secure. So the way they sort of operated in Vietnam was limited exposure, come in as an export platform and try not to be a victim of these sort of governance issues. So I would say that's sort of the first era of Vietnam. So then labor costs in Vietnam have risen over time. It's still a cheaper place compared to China. Labor quality remains high. But on those other areas, what we've seen now is that there's been a lot of improvement. There's been a lot of investment in infrastructure and road quality. There's still more to do, but investors are happier with that. They generally don't complain about those anymore. The biggest complaint that investors tend to have is about connectivity. You know, can we get our stuff from rail to ports? Can we get our stuff from roads to air, and, that, and those are issues that they're working on. The regulatory costs have come down a lot. Inspections have declined dramatically over time. 90% of firms are registered and licensed within three months, many within a single month. So with public service delivery has improved. People have started to admire the Vietnamese government capacity. I think in terms of COVID, we saw this. In terms of Vietnamese management of the COVID situation, it, it has one of the lowest infection and death rates in the world. And that's a credit to, you know, some things about Vietnam's non-democratic system, but also to its bureaucratic capacity and transparency about the way they were dealing with the process. The third thing I want to talk about, because I said it's pretty important, is a lot of the investors in Vietnam, as I said, location was really important. And many investors in both eras of this sort of early and later era of foreign investment, we're managing what was called a China plus one strategy. So what they would do is they'd put a large portion of their supply chain in China, but then they had part of their operations in Vietnam. Part of that was as a safety valve, so they could switch over, run an extra line in the Vietnamese assembly. Part of it was sort of an investment for the future. 
And then what we saw happened when there was a trade war during the Trump administration between China and the United States, a lot of firms exercised that sort of insurance contract of the, of the China plus one strategy. So we started to see a lot of shifting in activity. So and I'll just give you a sense of this really quickly. Overall exports from Vietnam to the United States in April 2018 were about $3.8 billion before the tariffs. But by April 19th, exports had risen to about $5.1 billion, so about a 25% year-on-year change. But the most dramatic has been in the electronics and computer sector, which were heavily targeted by the Trump tariffs, where there's been about a 120% increase in exports in just that year, and it's increased over time. So you see this big sort of boom in that electronics and computer sector driven by that. And that, that continues right now as, as a result. So to put like a couple of numbers on this for your listeners, you know, despite the hardship of COVID, foreign direct investment in Vietnam is going to remain pretty high this year. So about $16 billion was licensed in 2020 and $4.1 billion was licensed in the first quarter of 2021. So it still remains a place that investors really still do want to invest. Right. And what are some of those biggest industries in Vietnam? I know you had said clearly 120% increase in growth related to electronics um, and computers, but is that the largest type of industry in Vietnam? Okay, so it is quickly becoming that. So okay. I guess let me be a little bit careful. Manufacturing is about 25% of GDP, but services represent about 42% of GDP. And agriculture and agricultural experts about 14%. So the biggest industry is services, and that has grown over time, especially including tourism, telecommunications, and finance and insurance. Those have been really big and fast-growing industries. And I want to flag that because one thing that you're starting to see is increasing environmental consciousness in Vietnam. I think that has a lot to do as a lot of people are, their income is generated primarily from non-manufacturing sectors. But in the manufacturing sector, historically, it's been textiles and garments. Textiles are about $26 billion a year. Footwear, about $15 billion in exports. Now we're starting to see a change. So the fastest growing ones are in phones, electronic goods and computers and machinery, and they've become the largest sources of exports in Vietnam. The interesting thing about that is that is primarily foreign investor driven there. Right. And, you know, interestingly enough, because you were talking about the China plus one strategy and the fact that Vietnam has actually seen an increase, right, in their (laughs) GDP or growth because of the imposed tariffs. What about the COVID impact, right? These particular entities, I would have imagined that perhaps, you know, when China was first impacted by COVID, that we would have seen the same type of growth in Vietnam then. But then, you know, what about the fact that China was probably first to recover and to your point, Vietnam reacted relatively quickly. How have these industries been impacted by COVID? Yeah, I don't want to sugarcoat this. COVID was really hard on and remains hard. Like Vietnam had a recent, a small recent outbreak that they're containing now and, and locked down again. I think there's different parts to the effect of COVID. So there is the immediate effect of the lockdown. Then there's the effect of the lost international market because others, and then there's sort of this secondary effect, which is as the negative impacts of the lockdown reverberate through the economy, then you have 
consumers with lower purchasing power domestically. And so you in all of the firms in Vietnam complain about that. So 87% of both foreign and domestic businesses said they experienced some related economic related setback. 13% of foreign businesses said their experience with COVID was completely negative. For foreign firms, the issues they complained about the most, and to some extent, these have recovered. So they complained about lack of access to their international markets. They talked about the disruption of their supply chains, both being able to get inputs and to be able to move product on. And then as the domestic market also started to collapse, a lot of these firms complained about the reduced cash flow for their businesses. I would also say that foreign investing firms were hit pretty badly here. 62% reported sales revenue declines. 22% of them laid off at least one employee last year as a result of the effects. But we have seen some recovery. The sector that was the most internationally focused, this sort of export sector that we've been talking about, has started to rebound. And the supply chains are starting to come back online as the U.S. and Europe start to recover. They're able to get access to domestic inputs. So that, that started to recover. The domestic-oriented, those trying to sell to the Vietnamese market and the Vietnamese service sector, they seem to be still struggling a little bit in terms of their recovery. I think this is an important thing for people who care a lot about Vietnam to watch is we're definitely going to see you know, what you might imagine to be like kind of a K-shaped recovery which is some people in some sectors benefiting and others taking longer time to be able to get back to where they were before. Sure. I mean, you know, for example, the tourism industry, right? Like the, when if no one can travel, that's good, definitely going to take a little bit longer to bounce back. So. Yeah. And that affects foreign firms, but that also affects a whole mm-hmm. host of small and medium-sized enterprises that engage in, and interact in the tourist industry and work with foreign firms as well. Right. It's interesting because... COVID clearly has created a lot of disruptions in terms of the Vietnamese market and and particular growth based on your statistics. They also focused, the Vietnamese government actually focused on transfer pricing issues and they were undergoing certain changes of its own. And the Vietnamese government issued Decree 132, which went into effect at the end of December 2020. Can you tell us more about Decree 132? What is it and what does it involve? It's part of an ongoing effort since about 2012 of Vietnam to sort of get a handle, better understand transfer pricing and figure out how to to work within the inevitability of this process. And so Decree 132 is the latest one. So your audience is obviously far more expert in transfer pricing. You know, I am a political economist. I'm not a lawyer. So, but I will say, I think that in terms of thinking about Decree 132, there, I think there's five changes that people are talking about. I'd say two are probably good for your listeners and, they, and, that, and that will make them happy. And three may pose a different set of burdens on them and, and they may want to think about those implications. I don't think any are or in any way sort of really dramatic, but they, they definitely will create different changes in how they do business. So let's talk about the, the good news first. So the good news is what sort of people are talking about is an updated commercial database. So in the past, it was very difficult to be able to prove the transactions that you were using, to be able to provide them to Vietnamese authorities when tax authorities were doing sort of audits of compliance. And they sort of required mostly internal financial documents and able to do it. And that made it very difficult for a lot of investors. The rules weren't entirely clear 
and investors were having trouble sort of putting all the data together, especially if they were doing sort of intra-group transactions or working with advisors who were doing that. And it also made for some inconsistent reporting of these transactions. So what Decree 132 does is allows for the use of commercial databases that retain standardized and updated financial information. And so I think multinational corporations are really going to benefit from these standardized and uniform databases for being able to justify the transactions that they're engaging in and and being able to show them to Vietnamese tax authorities. That's the first of the good news. The second one is there's been an increase in the cap of interest expenses that are considered deductible for corporate income tax purposes. I think the big thing here is that it expands the cap and then it also allows for a, a much greater deal of flexibility in terms of being able to count deductions. So that I think that would also go in the positive side of the ledger. The three things that I think may have a, a different impact on balance sheets, depending on the type of investor, the one that most people are talking about that's gotten the most attention inside Vietnam has been the narrowing of the arm's length transaction range. So, you know, you know, what prices are we going to use for justifying arm's length transactions, especially when they've done with related parties? So it used to be that you would use the 25th percentile to the 75th percentile. So what Vietnam did was they increased that so it would be the 35th percentile to the 75th percentile. So it keeps the median at the same place. So the, the median transaction is the same. But the main effect, of course, is that it will drive up the minimal profit. What's considered like an appropriate minimum return to the Vietnamese operation, right? It, it increases the floor. Yeah, so I focus on Vietnam, but my understanding of that is that is a really distinctive case, that this is, mm-hmm. is a really unique way to do this by sort of narrowing this range and sort of moving that minimum range up in a way that allows them to be able to say that there were higher profits recorded in the transaction. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, so for your edification, the only other country out there that has a narrower range okay. would be India. <laughs> which is the 35th percentile, the 65th percentile. Okay, I see. Yeah, Yeah, no, I definitely, I mean, I can definitely see the the economic effect of it. It's a very interesting policy change. Yeah. It definitely is. A global pandemic, a grim economic forecast, feeling the squeeze, an R&D tax credit can help lower your burn. If you qualify, the IRS and some state governments will give you a tax credit equal to 10% of your company's spend on development activities. You can even take the credit against payroll taxes if you're in the red. All you have to do is claim it. So what's stopping you? If an expensive application process is turning you off, sorry, now you really have no excuse. Cross-Border Solutions AI-driven R&D tax credit software eliminates the need for pricey consultants and allows you to apply for R&D credits all over the world for one low fee. After all, why should you have to spend your whole R&D tax credit on getting your R&D tax credit? It's your money. Keep more of it with Cross Border Solutions, the global leader in AI-driven tax solutions. Request a demo today. Visit xbs.ai/rd. That's xbs.ai/rd. When we think about the Vietnamese government and sort of trying to stimulate 
economic development, investment in Vietnam. You know, I'm, I'm curious, right, from your perspective, that I don't see a lot of companies originate out of Vietnam. It's all about getting investment into Vietnam, right? Mm. I think that has been historically true in Vietnam's path and development, but I do think that's starting to change. So the Viettel, Vietnam's large telecommunications provider, it was heavily invested in Myanmar and Cambodia. It even had some investments in Madagascar. Becamax, a company out of Bingzhuang now has operations even in California. And there's a sort of a growing business, which is from the VIN business group. They're starting to manufacture cars and other things. So that I think that's starting to change. I do think it is a path of development. But I, I, I will say for sure, Mimi, like, I think you're absolutely right to say that there is a dualism in the Vietnamese business environment that's problematic. So 70% of manufacturing exports are now done by foreign invested enterprises. And, you know, it's changing, but Vietnamese private companies have not been as involved in those supply chains as they should. That, that's starting to change. Like, like, I think recently about 61% of foreign investors say at least some of their inputs are coming from Vietnamese companies, but it's been historically low. And so you really haven't seen the growth of the very successful, efficient Vietnamese domestic companies yet. So I, I named a few examples that are starting to change, but it is hard to point to a lot of these successes. You know, the, the reason for my question is because ultimately that means that 70% of the companies that are based on foreign investment are very much plagued by transfer pricing issues. And the changes to this new Decree 132 are going to force taxpayers to better monitor their intercompany pricing exactly. How does all of this impact them directly? I mean, this this is going to impact more than 70% of the companies operating in Vietnam. Would you agree? 70% of exports. But I, I mean, okay. well, yeah, I mean, Vietnam probably has 600,000 private domestic companies. I mean, I agree it's, it's going to have an impact. I do think it might be useful to think about it from the Vietnamese perspective on this, like I just, you know, just to give another side to this story, like I agree that the range is narrow, but yeah, there is a historical pattern here. So go back to 2013. So Vietnam has a, a pretty big hyperinflation crisis and a sudden stop. They are running quite large government deficits that played a role in this crisis. And they are generating very little revenue from the foreign sector. And then on top of that, you had foreign investors calling for two things that were going to affect the Vietnamese bottom line a lot. So they wanted, you know, we've already talked about they wanted increased expenditures on infrastructure, education, better public service delivery. And foreign investors were also very concerned about competition with Vietnamese state-owned sector. And they wanted reductions in the state-owned sector. And so the, the issue that the Vietnamese government faced was, so how do you plug these government deficits while expanding these services. And then also, at that point, the most reliable source of tax revenue was the state-owned enterprises. So everybody could agree that they were inefficient, that you didn't want them driving the export case. But on the other hand, they were contributing about 40% of the non-oil tax revenue. And so this did come to a head. I often think it's kind of amusing, but this came to a head in 2013 when Coca-Cola applied for an expansion of their investment license by about $300 million in Vietnam. And they wanted to expand to three new provinces. And Vietnamese authorities got back to them and said, like, why do you want to expand your investment 
because you've been here 10 years and you've never once been profitable. That is like Coca-Cola never reported a profit. Like, and of course, Coca-Cola had answers for all of this, right? They said, we do pay value-added taxes. It takes us a long time for us to be profitable in developing country markets, sometimes 25 years. But as I said, Vietnam had this immediate pinch of how do you fill in revenue? And so IMF and World Bank are saying to Vietnam, hey, you need to do something about this revenue gap. You need to expand your tax base, right? So that means maybe moving to value added or sales taxes or higher income taxes on Vietnamese citizens. That does broaden the base, but it does mean that it's Vietnamese poorest that are gonna be brought into this and have to face the burden of this, right? So then after that Coca-Cola debacle, you know, sort of debate, then, then Vietnam does an audit and reports that, you know, 57% of the 5,500 foreign invested enterprises that were operating in Vietnam at that time were reporting losses. So that's what led to this sort of increased activity to audit. And then, you know, I could point out stories of things, which included like not just Coca-Cola, but Pepsi and Adidas and Unilever all of these companies that had been in Vietnam for a long time, but were not actually paying corporate income taxes, right? And then there were things that were just, you know, when, when auditors looked at it, kind of crazy. So there was this firm called Taiwanese Ingnam Vina, which declared in terms of pricing a $16 million price for a production line that if was sold to a third party at existing prices would have been sold for 400000 So I think what's led to this is like transfer pricing is legal and makes sense for a lot of companies, but I think their concern is it can be abused. And then developing countries like Vietnam have their own struggles. And so that, that's what creates the situation of this very difficult sort of dance between developing countries that are trying to grow their economies and are dependent on foreign investment. And then at the same time, foreign investors who are trying to grow their businesses and do the best for shareholders and operate within the existing rules. And I think that's that's where we are right now and it exists. I would say like the Vietnamese, they tried to do a whole bunch of things to fix the situation in ways that I think foreign investors would like, right? They lowered in 2011, their corporate income tax was 25%. After the situation, they did increase their attention to transfer pricing, but they did reduce the corporate income tax to 22% and then reduced it again to 20% in 2017 with the idea of lowering corporate taxes generally as a way to make the environment more attractive mm-hmm. to firms and, you know, in terms of the competition. But, but how do you compete at, at the end of the day? Like, how do you compete against free, right? The fifth and ninth largest foreign investors in Vietnam, according to general statistical office are British Virgin islands and Cayman islands. Right? So at some point you do have to ask, like, shouldn't the countries where the production is taking place, and have to face the externalities of that production, shouldn't they be able to retain some revenue as opposed to a 0% corporate income tax, right? Yeah, Mm. well, that leads to the whole OECD BEPS action plan and the focus of that, which is this understanding of where is value being created and what's the appropriate level of remuneration, right? And, you know, one of the points that you just mentioned is very telling in terms of Vietnam's sort of participation as part of this global framework, inclusive framework in this base erosion profit shifting action plan, because you said most of the Vietnamese companies were losing money, right? And I'm sure that that raised some eyebrows and clearly forced the 
Vietnamese government to take a closer look and think, okay, so are these companies actually taking advantage of these tax arbitrage situations? Are we in fact missing out on the taxable revenue that really should be where profit should be attributed to these particular functions that are happening here? Are companies manipulating the pricing structures? Yes. Right. And I think like the solution you already mentioned with the OECD proposal one country cannot solve this problem. This is a global situation, mm-hmm. right? Like, like it, the situation forces developing countries to compete against one another in terms of sort of, you know, this race to lower the corporate income tax. And yeah, when you really do have to care about the services that you want to deliver, you have to think about, you know, the other side of the budget sheet. So yeah, the way I see it, like I see this narrowing the range as part of the sort of a long-term historical process of, Vietnamese authorities sort of coming to grips with how this works and what's going on and trying to find solutions that value the foreign investors and try to deal with this in the least interventionist ways. And I think the narrowing the range, the way I see it, is that it's a way to do it without raising the transaction costs or making investors have to deal with more reporting burdens or you know more auditing burdens, which can ultimately end up maybe even being more costly. Sure. Well, with the exception of that additional TP declaration form now, right? If we go back to Decree 132, there's a, there's a new form mm-hmm. related to cross-border related party transactions that have to be right. reported out. I mean, yeah. this whole implementation of Decree 132, the additional type of information, I think it all culminates to what you are saying and supports your historical framework, which I, I love, in that Vietnam is now focusing on transfer pricing related issues. They're noticing that companies are taking loss positions. They're sort of mandating now, in a, maybe that's a very strong word, but mandating that companies need to really evaluate whether or not they have an appropriate level of return to the operations that they have set up in, in Vietnam, right? Yes, I agree with this. This country by country report you know, that you mentioned, I, I, I think is really going to be interesting of companies, you know, quite sizable companies. I think the the cutoff is going to be $782 million in consolidated global revenue. They, you know, they will have to report, you know, these global transactions. I, I mean, I definitely see the burden there. I also just think as a researcher, I think it's very interesting because it will be very interesting to be able to see these global transactions next to each other. I you know how the money flows is something that's very difficult to observe outside of a company. Well, you're going to love to get your hands on that data, right? And actually, I would love to get my hands on that data. I don't think I will, but I would love to get my hands on that data. Yeah. 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 Well, and do you think that this sort of increased level of transfer pricing scrutiny, the implementation of Decree 132, do you think that'll actually deter multinationals from investing in Vietnam? I mean, I think you were saying earlier, Vietnam is very cognizant of trying to be a country to support investment, right? Yeah. To help their economic growth and development. I really don't. I, I mean, I think the benefits of being in Vietnam, the dramatic growth in Vietnam, and what Vietnam has been able to deliver in terms of improvements in infrastructure governance and services, I think that they will outweigh this. I agree this is a problem or something that will raise their costs, but I think ultimately the benefits of operating out of the Vietnamese market and I think eventually selling to the rapidly growing Vietnamese consumer base are, are much higher than that. And, and I do think like 
there are going to be plenty of opportunities for investors to be able to engage with Vietnamese authorities about this. You know, there's an annual Vietnam Business Forum where the chambers of commerce of different countries get together and provide research notes and Vietnamese authorities show up to exchange ideas about that. The Vietnamese Chamber of Commerce and Industry has been a tireless advocate on the part of businesses. So, and the one thing that I've seen in my, you know, 20 plus years of, you know, working in Vietnam is that Vietnam can be quite flexible about these things. Like it's a very pragmatic, technocratic sort of way of thinking. If if this just starts to, to cause problems and foreign investors do start to pull out, you will see Vietnam change its course. It's not going to stick to a procedure that's going to be ultimately economically damaging. And I'm curious, I mean, any advice for multinationals that clearly have to, you know, adhere to these requirements, they have to file the form, and then they have a contemporaneous documentation requirement, you know, in order for them to mitigate their risk and manage the expectations of operating in Vietnam, what kind of advice would you have for them in terms of their transfer pricing documentation or their intercompany dealings? Yeah, I, I think, I mean, play it straight. Recognize that the Vietnamese government values foreign investment and wants to work with you, but also understand the constraints that Vietnamese authorities are operating in. They are trying to sort of be able to deal with an economy that is where we're talking like 96 million people and be able to provide resources and opportunities for those people as well. They want to work with you on foreign investment. They see that as part of the solution but they expect people to adhere to their side of the bargain. I think there are now, as I said, there are opportunities for engagement on these issues if they really are problematic through Chambers of Commerce and the Vietnam Business Forum. And I would find ways, if these are really issues, to, to get yourself on the list, to be able to talk about those issues. And, and I would say the last one is make sure you fill out the Provincial Competitiveness Index survey when you get it, because we monitor these burdens, right? So, and then we, and we report them annually. Like this year, we did an entire module on tax compliance issues that talked about where the biggest difficulties were, and that will also be able to inform changes in these policies. Oh, we're going to have to do a whole another podcast just on the survey results. So. <laughs> <laughs> yes, absolutely. Yeah, I was prepared. I was prepared, but maybe we could do that another time. Yeah. <laughs> My last question, what can other developing countries learn from Vietnam's approach to transfer pricing or to international investment or foreign investors? Right. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think like there are the two things that I, I think we've sort of talked about already, which is there does need to be an international solution that you know, what Vietnam's doing in terms of reducing its corporate income tax and, and reducing rate and reducing some of the administrative burdens in terms of using commercially available databases. I think those are some step forward. But once again, this is a, a global environment where foreign companies can go into a lot of different places. And I do think that when this system constructed is abused by some, it does end up shifting the tax burden onto the world's poorest. And I don't think anybody would, I think everybody would agree that that's not the appropriate situation. But I do think if I were to say, if I were to give advice to other countries that have not handled this to the same extent, I would advise that that Vietnam's pragmatic and technocratic approach and being willing to listen and being willing to change policies and being adaptable may be the best way to do it. And second, you know, Vietnam has been pretty open about engaging with foreign investors about the best way to do this. So I think those resources are available for developing countries to consider. 
I think we'll see, as, as you're pointing out, we really don't know, you know, whether Decree 132 is the answer here. So maybe we wait a couple of years and see, you know, how 132 plays out, because maybe that is, maybe we learn that, there, that some of the things in 132 may be steps forward. I, I think this has been great. I mean, clearly Vietnam has seen quite the transformation over the years. Their focus on transfer pricing is very apparent in this new adoption of Decree 132. And yet at the same time, they don't want to make it an objection or hurdle to attract foreign investment. They want to create an opportunistic environment for multinationals to set up operations in Vietnam, but they they don't want to be considered a place where they can just parking lot a bunch of losses, right? And compete against, they have to figure out how to compete against a 0% tax rate holidays and things of that nature. Mm-hmm. But it sounds like they're doing all the right things, but clearly there are challenges from a transfer pricing perspective and, and they're part of that global inclusive framework and the discussions that the OECD is happening. So we'll we'll continue to hear more about Vietnam and the challenges and benefits to multinationals operating there. Thank you so much, Eddie. This has been fantastic. I, I really do think your expertise with the Vietnamese economy and, and understanding the challenges has been exciting. It's been really fun for me to learn from you too, Mimi. This is an interesting area and not one that I've focused on throughout my career, but it's clearly an important issue for Vietnam. And I enjoyed learning from you in this discussion. Awesome. Note to multinational companies everywhere. If you think the coronavirus has affected your bottom line, take a look at how it's devastated the economies of governments around the world. And where do you think tax authorities will look to make up for all that lost revenue? That's right, your transfer pricing. You can't afford to be non-compliant, but then you probably can't afford to pay for an overpriced consultant who bills by the hour either. Oops, sorry, big four. We've got the answer. Cross-border solutions, AI-powered transfer pricing software keeps you in compliance by preparing accurate, hyper-localized reports that protect you from transfer pricing audits, penalties, and adjustments. And our technology is available for one flat fee, a fraction of what you'd pay a big-name consultant. Again, apologies, Big Four. Stay in compliance and on budget with Cross-Border Solutions AI-driven transfer pricing software. It's no wonder we're the global leader in AI-driven tax solutions. There we go again. I'm so sorry, Big. You you know what? Wait, who am I kidding? Sign up for a free demo of Cross Border Solutions Transfer Pricing Technology today at xbs.ai slash TP. That's xbs.ai slash TP. Welcome back, everyone. Now comes for my favorite part of the show a little segment we like to call What We Want to Know, a rapid fire round of questions, a little bit more about career choices and and about getting to know our guest a little bit more than it is about transfer pricing. But those questions come into play, too. And, of course, in the hot seat is our guest today, Professor Molesky. Always question one, Professor Molesky, are you ready? I am ready. Excellent. Question number two, what is your favorite Vietnamese food? So my favorite Vietnamese food is a specialty of the southern province of Da Nang. It's called Mi Quang. It's kind of like a, a thick noodle dish, but it's not soupy like pho. It has pork, a quail egg, lots of veggies, and it's super spicy. It's delicious. Fill in the blank. One thing I missed about teaching in person is? It's way easier for students to learn from one another. You really can never replicate the magic of the three-way exchange in the classroom. And what's one thing you hope your students will remember about years after they graduate? Okay, my students are going to laugh at this. So good empirical analysis is impossible without 
good theory as your guiding light. And as researchers, we're truth seekers. We're not hypothesis provers. You can put that on my tombstone. What's a skill that can't be taught? Perseverance. We want to thank Cross-Border Solutions Chief Economist Mimi Song and Professor Eddie Molesky from Duke University for joining us on today's show. We want to thank everyone at home for tuning in. Don't forget to check out the entire suite of Cross-Border Solutions Tax Podcasts on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. My name's Matthew DeMello, and they let me host the Fiona Show Transfer Pricing. This podcast was produced by Andrew O'Donnell. Christy Clements is our associate producer. Mary Lynn Mitchum-Strom is our executive producer. Stay safe, everyone, and we'll catch you next week. Next week.